Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Hello. How are you guys doing today? Great. Doing good. Better than I deserve, as we used to say. Well, then you're also doing better than me. <laughs> oh, no. so I'm actually doing great. We're starting to enter into our Christmas season. I mean, technically, we're in the Advent season. From a secular point of view, we have clearly hit Christmas season. <laughs> yes. You know, the, yeah, in fact, what, Thanksgiving? Yeah, the music is on. <laughs> the st- August. The st- yeah, it's going to stay July 4th. <laughs> the, stores are, the stores are all full of Christmas displays. And the Christmas parties have started. The holiday parties have started, depending on how secular you must be in your own workplace. So... Uh, I understand you're doing quite well with that. Being secular in my workplace? Well, <laughs> representing us deacons in your workplace, yes. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, I try. It's interesting, frankly, in my workplace where I work, you know, it's not, I don't work in a church-based organization. I work in a law firm, but people find out I'm a deacon and they sometimes want to talk about that. They want to talk about the church. And so far in all these years, the people who come to me to, who want to talk to me don't want to talk about the bad things. They want to talk about the good things. They want to tell me about their experiences and their relatives who are coming back to the church. Just last night, I had a very interesting conversation with a woman whose son has none of the sacraments, but he is in a joined a group out in his college, which I'll remain nameless, but it's out in Pittsburgh. (laughs) And he is trying to sign up to go to Youth World Day, I think, which is going to be in Portugal next year. And he's just getting very excited about his faith. And she wanted to talk to me about that. So you know, these things happen even in the secular workplace. So since we're approaching the Christmas season, our guest today will be Dr. Eric Van Den Eichel, who we'll talk about and talk with in just a few minutes. But I was wondering if you guys had any Christmas stories from your past or your present or your future, to, to quote, you know, Charles Dickens, that you'd like to share. I don't know if I have a Christmas story, like, you know, Ralphie and get my tongue stuck on the pole and all that stuff on the Christmas story, right? But Christmas was a great time. I'm the oldest of six kids, and it was great. My parents, God bless them, you know, I don't know how they did it, but when you got up on Christmas morning with six kids, it looked like Santa's sled had tipped over in the living room. The stuff was literally a pile. It was up to my chest, whatever age I'm remembering this at as a kid. So to say three feet, two feet, multiple layers of presents spilling out into the next room. You couldn't even get to the tree if you had to. I just remember waking up and just being like as happy as I've probably ever been on this planet. The one story that is told was one of the Christmas adventures. So my poor parents, and of course, having been a parent, you realize what it takes to make Christmas happen. When you're a kid, it never comes. It was four weeks before Christmas. Gee, the calendar never moves. And if you're a grown-up, you're like, oh, my God, I don't have any time. It's done. And then you're up to four in the morning, probably putting stuff together or whatever, pulling it out of hiding, going over to Uncle Ray's house or wherever you had the gifts stashed or whatever. Because we looked. I mean, six we looked. Don't you think we didn't look? <laughs> mm-hmm. But we never found them because they were at Uncle Ray's. We never thought of that. So that's one for the parents. But one of the things I did one year was being the oldest now, so I'm kind of the team leader on this. 
is I woke up because they put me to bed at seven o'clock. So, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm in a coma. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like they're going to have a drink or two and do this stuff and like these kids to bed. You know, they use that whole thing of, oh, Santa's not going to come if you're not asleep. So, okay, we four o'clock it is, Ma, right to bed. It's still light out. We don't care. Anyway, you know, we went to bed. I said, I got up. And it was dark. And, of course, as an adult now, I realized my parents probably went to sleep an hour before this. And so I woke up my brothers and my sister. And I said, I'm going downstairs. And, of course, we had an old house and creaky stairs, and my parents' bedroom was at the top of the stairs. But I had already figured where the loose boards were. So it was like step where I step kind of thing. And then we got to the stair, and I went down the stairs on my belly so as not to touch them like a snake. And they all followed me, and it was perfect. I mean, it was Delta Force perfect. (laughs) We go in, we see the pile. Oh, my God, it is just out of control. And we're being very quiet. We're going, look, they got that. Oh, that's what I asked for. You know, they're doing all this stuff. I I have this memory. And I thought we were so slick. And then my brother Neil got one of his presents that year. I think it was called the Big Wrecker. And imagine a giant Tonka toy wrecker, you know, Mm -hmm. picks up cars and stuff. And it was like, up to my shins. I mean, it was big without a little car. And uh, he pushed the button. The winch started going. <laughs> the siren went off. Yep. The thing is flashing lights. I have no idea what button he put. He stepped back in horror, like, oh my God, you know, he doesn't know what to do. And I'm like, I'm pushing, pounding everything, trying to stop it. And we didn't wake them up because my poor parents are probably so exhausted they couldn't hear it. So we pulled it off. We snuck upstairs, and uh, my siblings still recount that story every once in a while. So that's that's great. the best I can that's do a for great a Christmas story. story. That's a great story. <laughs> so my story also has to do with my childhood and my parents. I mean, I've got a couple of stories in the beginning of our marriage when we were dirt poor, but, you know, I won't recount those. What I will do is talk about the time I grew up. We were not rich in my family. My father always worked hard. And like your parents, Dennis, my parents always made Christmas a big event for me and my sister. And when I look back now, I have no idea how they did it. No idea how they could have afforded what they did because I now know how much they made and it's incredible. But one Christmas, I desperately needed a new jacket. We lived in South Georgia at the time. I don't know if that's relevant or not. It might be with the prices. But anyway, I remember I was somewhere between the age of 11 and 13. And we found the jacket in a department store that, that would be perfect for me. I liked it. My parents, it was a little expensive at the time, but they said, we'll do it. And so we were on one end of the department store. My father pulled out a $50 bill to give me to go buy the jacket. He said, you go buy it now. You know, we picked it out already. We looked at it, take the 50, go over there and buy it. And he be- continued shopping with my mother. Somewhere between that spot and getting to the jacket spot, <laughs> I lost the $50. <laughs> I have, you know, obviously I stuck it in my pants pocket and then pulled my hand out and it fell on the floor. I was horrified. I was really frightened, too, because my father was a good man with a good sense of humor, but he could become impatient. He could become a little angry. (laughs) Couldn't take a joke. (laughs) Shall we say he could become impatient? Yes, let's say impatient. Let's go with that. And again, 
I didn't know how poor we really were, but I knew that we weren't rich. So I just knew this was a huge hit. Do you have any idea how much your dad made a week, say? Oh, you know what? I should have figured at that time. I, should, I don't. I should have figured it out. But I, you know, a few hundred, you know, a few hundred, maybe a couple hundred, maybe two hundred. I, I don't really know, but he, we weren't rich. He didn't own a store. He didn't have a profession. He worked with his hands, and so I went back, and my parents were still. Well, I found them. I don't know where they were. I mean, in my recollection, they were standing in the spot that I left them, but that's probably not accurate. But I got them both together, and I said. I lost the $50 and there was complete silence for a minute or two as my father's lips, you know, got tighter <laughs> and my mother looked at my father and just looked at him and my father looked at me and reached down in his pocket and gave me another $50 bill. That was a huge moment in my mm. learning curve, in my life. And since I have such vivid memories of today, it, I try to remember it. When my kids were little, I had a daughter. I have a daughter and a son. I haven't always lived up to that standard of patience and generosity, but it's a Christmas memory to me of a parent who pushed to his limit, still managed to do what he had to do in a loving way. Well, for the, young, for the younger listeners, I can remember my dad and his friends sitting around talking when I, I'm old enough to remember it, so I don't know if I was 9, 10, 11, I don't know. But they were all sitting around our kitchen table talking, and I walked through to get something in the refrigerator and walked back out. And I heard my father say to one of his friends, you know, now he, this is a man with six kids. He was an electrician, maintenance electrician. And he said, you know, if I could make $100 a week, I'd be happy. And I can remember hearing that and going, wow, that's all the money in the world, $100 a week. But again, for your $50 story, because mm -hmm. <laughs> we're approximately the same age. Yep. Give people an idea that, you know, that was half a paycheck At least, or something. You know, maybe, probably you know, know what I, I mean. I, that was not $50 today. Right, right. The story I have, a different Christmas story, but to the point about how much you made. So I spent my life in the financial world. And so I was pretty astute with retirement and stuff like that. So one day I come across my father's retirement statement from the city of Bridgeport, October 31st, 1971. And his defined benefit plan after working for the city, he was the art carney of the city of Bridgeport. He worked in the waste treatment plant, right? We always joked about that. Tough work. 15 years. Is the fine people who art carney is. Oh, um, art carney is. Uh, you old fool. <laughs> is the uh, Jackie Gleason companion, the Jackie Gleason show that was on TV. A hundred years ago. <laughs> the honeymoon. Yeah. The honeymoon. Maybe, yeah. this, maybe, this, will, maybe this will help the audience. Hey, Ralphie. Hey, Ralphie, baby. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> went down in the sewers. My dad just worked at the plant where it all ended up. And after 15 years working for the city of Bridgeport, his defined benefit plan was $3,100. So he goes into retire at 65 years old with a whopping sum of $3,100 that got him through to 82 years old. So a lot of years. Which again is a reflection of how little was being made and what a big change there has been in the financial world with how much money went fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. Oh my God. Even Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana, said a billion here, a billion there, you know, you're talking real money. Mm -hmm. We've come a long way. But that's a different chapter. So my story for being a kid was again the youngest of five kids for Christmas. And went to Catholic grammar school. All of us did when we went through that. And of course the tradition of midnight mass. And so being in a Catholic school meant that you 
had to be part of the choir of angels to sing at midnight mass if you were in third or fourth grade or more. So here I was the first time at midnight mass and we, we had to be in a choir. But I had specific instructions from Sister Designata because even at that young age, my voice was so terrible, my singing voice. I still had to be there at the midnight mass. And she said, Tommy, you can open your mouth, but do not let anything come out. I would pollute the whole, I would, that's it. There'd be no choir of heavenly angels. And <laughs> what did you do with the money, the lesson, the money for the lesson? So, <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, Tom, I hate to interrupt your story, but having sat next, uh, stood next to you in mass, uh, your sister knew what she was talking about. <laughs> she was right. Oh, she was right. She, <laughs> you, you haven't lived until you heard Deacon Casey sing the exalted. Yeah, uh, no, we wouldn't do that. that There's no penance that would be, uh, <laughs> be too extreme. But uh, good memories of a Christmas morning. But like, like Dennis, we would get up. But well, my parents had a different regime. Before we could attack the presents, we had to have breakfast. So can you imagine five kids sitting down there ready to go? Cruel and unusual And mom right and dad there. are cooking bacon and eggs and sausage. And <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. It was the fastest breakfast in a cleanup that you could ever imagine. I oh, you had a cleanup, too? I oh, indeed, yeah. And All the, these people, this is like a Korean torture. Well, team. the whole thing was, again, they made the day stretch out. It was not going to be like so many we came across that were up at 6.30 in the morning, the presents were ripped open by 7, and the day was all done, and then the disappointment with the broken toys. We sat around, and everybody took one present at a time and would open it, and it went through, and then have a little bit something else would come along. Even to this day here, Christmas Day, when we had our kids, we would sit around to the same procedure, and a little breakfast and everything, the little torture chamber, and then we'd be having supper or coffee at 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd take a break. They do the stocking. So it would be an all-day event where we share stories, especially with young kids that are teenagers, 15, 16, 18, 19, as they got ready just before they left the house, to tell the stories of, I remember when, and those days we find out what they were doing when we went on vacation. Oh, Dan, do you remember the time that mom and dad went away and you had that super-duper party? And yeah, mm -hmm. Well, we knew it because there were eggs on the floor and the, the crazy things they did. But it was just a wonderful day where, uh, was centered around church, going to church, a nice community in our former parish in Connecticut. But it lingered on and created many good memories that we're able to, you know, just now in this point in life, we're able to look at some of the pictures and enjoy them too. Yep. Well, let's turn to our guest of honor today, Dr. Eric Vanden Eichel, who's going to talk to us about his book about the Magi and enlighten us as to what those stories meant in the Gospel of St. Matthew. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Eric Vanden Eichel, who is professor at Ferrum College. He is the teaching chair in humanities there. He's an associate professor of religious studies, and he's also an instructor of the New Testament, at least for a one-semester sabbatical replacement. We're going to be talking to him about a recent book that he has published, The Magi, Who They Were, How They've Been Remembered, and Why They Still Fascinate, published by Fortress Press. Prior to that, he published, But Their Faces Were All Looking Up, author and reader in the Protovangelium of James, The Reception of Jesus in the First Three Centuries, published at T&T Clark. Then I look at his CV, and there are six more pages 
of what he's published and what he's spoken on. So since we only have about an hour here, I'm not going to read all that, but I'd like to point out a little bit about it because some of it really kind of gives you an indication into the serious and yet lighthearted nature that he brings to the studies of theology and scripture studies. This is a serious one, actually. I don't want to leave this out. Next year, he will be forthcoming Judeophobia and the New Testament, text, context, and pedagogy, co-edited with Sarah E. Rollins and Meredith J.C. Warren. And that is something that I actually am really looking forward to reading when that comes out. And then there are, like I said, pages and pages of journal articles, including spear wounds and sleigh bells, believing and seeing in the Gospel of John and the Polar Express, which was a paper given on, in 2015, so we missed that one. He just recently gave a, uh, a talk on this particular book, Eric Ruins the Magi, which I love the title. And there are others, but I think we should move on. I to... think we can all stipulate that he's smarter than the rest of us. Yeah, really. yeah. yeah that's <laughs> What's he doing sure. here with us? <laughs> very good, Dennis. Very good. You, you'd make a fine lawyer when the expert witness against you is just that. And instead of saying, oh, we stipulate to his credentials, it's, <laughs> he's smarter Correct. than the rest of us. I knew you'd us. like that. <laughs> so welcome to our podcast, Dr. Vanden Eichel. Oh, thank you for having me. And what an intro. And I'm not sure about the smarter than you bit, but, but what an intro. So, this is a, a fantastic book. I, I really like the book, and it, it, we're going to talk about it a lot today, but just to preliminarily say, it's loaded with information about how to read Scripture, about the Gospel of Matthew, and of course, Jesus, and of course, the Magi. This is a story that I think we all thought we knew, and one of the big points you make in the beginning of the book is we thought we knew it because we've heard it so much, and we've read so much into it that maybe some of it may not have been what Matthew intended. But having said that, I want to get one thing out of the way. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Is it magi, magi, magi? That's a great question. So in the Greek, it's magoi. When I say English, I tend to alternate kind of subconsciously between magi and magi. But, um, but magi is how, I, is how I kind of default. Yeah. All right. And then it's almost impossible to know where to begin because there's so much that you address in the book, and the, in the book addresses it in a great order. And I'm going to be taking maybe a little bit out of order, but I want to talk a little bit more about this thing that I'm quoting you now in your book. All stories are read in light of what a reader brings to the text. And I think that's what makes this book so amazing to me is because I thought I knew so much, and I knew some of it might not have been right coming out of Matthew, having read that gospel on, on Epiphany in the Catholic Church for the last 20 years as a deacon. But, you know, you never know what you really know until you sit down and talk about it with people who know more than you. The nativity scenes that we all have in our houses are all structured so that it appears, you know, the Magi are there in the nativity scene at the birth of Jesus. Is it a foregone conclusion by scholars that the Magi showed up that night, assuming it was nighttime? Well, that's a big debate as we about the kind of timing of uh, what Matthew is, is imagining, you know, when are they, when are they showing up? The nativities that were, that were used to many of us being, or I mean, really you see them on your mantle or, or driving around, you see them in front of churches. And those nativities don't really exist in the biblical text. They're a combination of, of Matthew, Luke, and then a little bit of the reader's imagination. And in many ways, that question of whether they arrived on the night or after sort of comes from trying to reconcile Matthew and Luke in, in harmonizing the two, the two narratives. But in the past, that has been an impulse to 
maybe Luke is writing about the birth and then Matthew is writing about what happens a couple years after that. But whether Matthew kind of imagines them arriving two years later or the, or the night of, sort of an open question. There's that strange reference when Herod decides to kill all of the babies because of the timing he heard from the Magi. That's sort of where that comes from. Well, before we go any further than in trying to understand what Matthew was saying, perhaps because it's so short, it would be appropriate if we just read that, that scriptural passage. And I'm going to read it from your book because you, did you actually translate this or is this a translation that you've used from somewhere else? That's my own translation. Okay, so we'll use your translation, which, by the way, is pretty close because I went back and looked at my NAB Bible and my, and my RSV Bible, and they're all, they're all pretty similar with a couple mm-hmm. of little changes here and there, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit. So here it is. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who has been born king of the Judeans? For we see his star at its rising and have come to honor him. King Herod panicked when he heard this, and all of Jerusalem panicked with him. He gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the anointed one is to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come a leader who will guide my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the Magi in secret, and he interrogated them regarding the time of the stars appearing. As he sent them to Bethlehem, he said, Go and investigate carefully concerning the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me, so that I too may go and honor him. They heard the king and then set out, and behold, the star that they saw at its rising went on ahead of them until it came and stopped over where the child was. When they saw the star, they celebrated with a joy that was exceedingly great. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling down, they honored him. They opened their chests and offered him gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they returned to their own land by another route. The Gospel according to Professor Van Den Eichel. <laughs> <laughs> so, there we have it. That's the story. That's all we have. Those are magi who were unnamed and unnumbered. So how did we get to knowing there, there are three of them? We know their names now. How did all that happen? Readers, listeners, fellow deacons, that's what this book is mostly about, I'd say, with some very serious undercurrents of what Matthew was maybe getting at, or probably getting at, I should say. So we'll just kind of pick it apart a little bit. Magi, that's the term that, is, that Matthew used. Some translations call them kings. Some call them wise men. They've been called magicians. I'm dropping it in your lap, Dr. Ben Michael. <laughs> what, what does heck, this word what, mean? What, what the heck is going on? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And that's really one of the big kind of starting points of this book. And one of the reasons that the book is titled The Magi instead of The Wise Men or The Astrologers or whatever is that I'm not sure we should be translating Magoi. I think we should just be leaving it as Magi because I think that the meaning of this term is ultimately there's too much baggage in the ancient world that it's associated with 
with magi. So the word that Matthew uses is technically an adjective. And so it's, it's really sort of magical things like, so ma- something that's magos would be a magic thing or, or that's very, very kind of wooden translation of it. But what I'm interested in, in this book is what, or at the start of this book anyways, what sorts of other people in the ancient world are called magi, right? So other, other authors that are not Matthew, who, who are they talking about and, and ascribing this label to? In the New Testament, there's a couple of other magi. They're in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is written likely by the author of the Gospel of Luke. And this author doesn't like magi very much. So in Matthew, they're positive characters. They come to Jesus and they're, and they're, and, and they're generous and all of this stuff. But in Acts, they're not. And so in Acts, there's a, there's a character named Simon who's described as somebody who has performed magic before. So the, the kind of verb version of this word. And then there's another character named Bar-Jesus, who's also called Elimus, and he is described as a false prophet, and he's sort of almost demonic. But both of these characters are sort of negative, right? And so if you look, though, in other, in other kind of ancient literature, they're talked about as sometimes it's sort of used as an insult, like it is in Acts, the charlatan, these sort of magicians or whatever. But then other times it's used to describe priests, like from in the neighborhood of Persia, respected religious professionals who are in charge of things like ritual and who are devoted worshipers of their gods and all of this. And so Matthew, when he calls his characters magi, he doesn't tell us what he means by it, right? That's the, that's the frustrating thing is he doesn't say magi, namely priests from Persia. He just says right. magi. So we have to figure out, we think that they're, I mean, they seem to be positive characters, but, but he's locating his reference within that context of this word can mean a lot of different things. And he doesn't say what it means, presumably because he doesn't think his readers need to know what it means. They right. already know. They already know what he means. They were from the East, and that's, that's really all he has to describe about them. Exactly. They're from the East. They bring gifts, and then they leave. The other fascinating element that you get into early on in the book, though, is because I asked you, we, we call it sometimes Three Kings Day. People call think of them as the, that the famous song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But the word king is in that passage, but it's referring to somebody else. Right. And so, the, yeah, the king, the king in that passage is, I mean, obviously, Herod is called a king by Matthew, but the king that they're interested in, that they're asking about, is the one born king of the Judeans, who is specifically not Herod. Right. And you point out in your book, this is, this is related to the genealogy mm-hmm. th- that comes from David, that Jesus is a descendant of David, who was the true and rightful king, David, to Jesus. And that's the Davidic line of royalty. And Herod was an imposter put in there by the Roman government. Yeah, that's right. And the genealogy is very much Matthew has a fondness for David, and Matthew is wanting to structure really everything about his birth story. He wants to preface it by saying this is about the Davidic line. And so the number 14 has some numeric significance that stands for, for, for David's name. David is also the 14th character in the genealogy, which is kind of interesting. And, and, so he, and, and Jesus is also born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. So Matthew is not a subtle author. He is somebody who, I mean, except for, of course, the Magi story, which is like, he doesn't explain <laughs> that, but everything else, he kind of, a lot of other things he does explain. He, he not only gives the genealogy, he gives the number 14. He's like, just in case you missed it, I'm structuring this around the number 14, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. 
Right, right. And then the other big element is the star mm-hmm. in, in this story. And that's been interpreted over and over and over again. I learned from reading your book. And it's kind of a strange acting star that you point out. And I never, I've actually have thought about this part of it because I've always wondered how they follow a star. I mean, you know, I look up, I look at the stars. I'm like, could I see a star that I would follow? Because they're not, they don't move. Stars don't move. So talk a little bit about the star. Sure. Yeah. So I, 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 this is, this is a place that I've actually changed my mind, not since writing the book. I still agree with the book that was published a month ago. But no, one of the things that I, that I sort of changed because I didn't really see it as clearly at first is people have a sort of mental image of this star as I describe it in the book as a carrot on a stick, right? Something that is going on before the Magi and they're sort of following it, trying to catch up with it. And then the strangeness of the star is that if the star leads them to Jerusalem, then it hangs a left, right? It turns. Right. Because, because that's, I mean, because Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. And so that is the kind of image that people have as this star that they are westward leading, right? Follow the We Three Kings star, the song, right? They're, they're following the star. And I realized after I spent more time kind of reading this story and then like you talked about figuring out what I was bringing to the to the story, I I realized that I was misreading that the star doesn't lead them to Jerusalem. The star sends them to Jerusalem. And so the idea in the story is that they saw a star at its rising and they saw this star that they interpreted as having significance, right? They see this thing and they say, oh my gosh, this, this is, this is the, the sign that the king of the Judeans has been born. And so they interpret that and they say, okay, we need to go and find the one born king of the Judeans. And then they leave and they go to where you would find the king of the Judeans, which is Jerusalem. Right. But then when they get there and they say, hey, we're looking for the one born of the king of the Judeans, Herod's like, well, where he consults his advisors rather than say, it's me because he it's not him. He consults his advisors and they say, oh, no, the anointed is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so then they go towards Bethlehem and the star that they saw reappears again, presumably for the first time since they left. And that's when it starts becoming almost like this mysterious sort of like a GPS locator almost, right? It sort of stops directly over Jesus's head. And so what you have in Matthew's story is it's almost like two different phenomena here, like two different, it's not two different stars because Matthew is, is very intent, like, no, it's the same star. Right. But you have the star that's behaving differently depending on where in the story it is. Well, apparently it disappears at some point when it gets when they when they get to Jerusalem or after it's rising, right? After it rises. And and this is one of those places where we could conjecture all day long about what does Matthew mean by this, but the way that I'm imagining is that they see this astronomical event, they discern significance from that, and then they hit the road. But they're not following the star. They are going to Jerusalem because that's where the star told them to go. It's laid out very, very nicely in the book. Oh, that's another thing, too. And I always like to say this whenever I interview a writer, because for, be honest with you, I, I won't read a book that I don't like reading. And it's just such a well-written book. And it's so easy to read for what I consider to be a scholarly book. I know maybe it's not as dense as other scholarly books one might think of, but this, all the trappings of a scholarly book that is easy to read. Mm. <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a compliment. One of my main goals with this book, my first book on the proto-gospel of James, the proto-evangelium of James, that text, I mean, that, that, that book is, is, a, is a revision of my doctoral dissertation. 
And so that is the kind of, I think, more classic scholarly monograph, big, huge footnotes and, and very, very technical and lots of Greek and Latin and, and Hebrew and all of the rest. And, and I like the book. It's, 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 I, I still am, am pretty proud of it, but people aren't picking that book up to read for fun because it's not a fun book. I mean, it's an interesting book, I think, but it's not a fun book. And so when I started, when I started writing this book back in, I mean, I've been researching for a while, but when I started actually writing in 2020, I was sort of at this point where I said, I want to write a book that, that anyone can, can read. And so this book has been reviewed now in a scholarly journal, which is great. And also my 11 year old daughter is reading it, which is incredible. Oh, absolutely. There's another thing too. There's, is it the king of the Jews or the king of the Judeans? And does that make a difference? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I do. One of the things that probably a bit different in my translation of the, of the text is for, for this past king of the Judeans rather than king of the Jews. So this is an ongoing debate in biblical scholarship, and it's all centered around the word eudaios, or, or the plural eudaioi. And really the debate is whether we should be translating this as Jew or Judean, right? And so one, one being sort of in our parlance being kind of a, a religious designation, right? Jewish. And then the other one being a sort of ethno-geographical designation. Right. So, right. and there's, there's really two big kind of polarizing positions and then a lot of middle ground between those. And one is is that whenever we encounter the word eudaioi, that we should be translating it as Jews, so king of the Jews. And then the other position being every time we encounter this, we should translate it as Judean because that's sort of closer, seems to be closer to what it would have, the connotation that it has in the ancient world as an ethnopolitical marker. And then there's those of us who, I mean, right, everyone thinks they're a centrist, but those of us who think that really it just depends, right? Because what does eudaios mean? Well, eudaios means eudaios. And so what, it, what does it mean in English? Well, how to translate that into English depends on the goals of what you're translating. And as I argue in this book, I think that this story is first and foremost a story about that kind of kingship, right? And the, the Magi are there to kind of to validate and to recognize Jesus's kingship. And so, in, so, I, so I opt for, for Judean to kind of bring out that political element more than King of the Jews, which sort of, I think, hide it a bit. In the book, after you explicate the story, if you will, for lack of a better term, and put it in the historical context and scriptural context of of where we find it, then you take us through the rest of the book on what we've done with it, starting with the apocryphal scriptures and moving into the patristic scriptures. Sure. The the chapter on apocrypha was probably one of my more ones to write because, I mean, I'm, I'm... I'm trained as a scholar of the Apocrypha. I'm, I'm trained as a scholar of the stuff that was written, the narrative material that was written after the New Testament. And so, so that was a lot of fun to, to kind of dig in. But the Apocrypha chapter is all people who want to tell Matthew's story, but they want to kind of fill in the details. So with Matthew's story being so vague in many ways, right? What is Magi? What is the star? All of these things. The Apocrypha, and this is a problematic term, but I think it's actually kind of helpful in some ways. The Apocrypha are sort of like, if we imagine the fan fiction today of like people who are really big fans of Star Wars, and they say, I'm going to write a story that's going to kind of fill in this character a little bit. And that's what the Apocryphal authors do. They retell Matthew's story, and they retell it by changing details, by highlighting details, by adding details, by taking away details. And so there's a lot of different texts. I won't go through all of them, but one of my favorite texts is the Syriac text, the Revelation. 
generation of the Magi, which is really, really, really wild. They are coming from kind of mystical lands and they are talking to each other. They're having these visions. They're, they're performing these rituals. And there's this really elaborate backstory. I mean, the revelation of the Magi is the story of the Magi, but it's as long as the Gospel of Matthew. Huge, huge story. Super, super detailed. And, and one of the really, really interesting details coming back to that question about the star is that in the revelation of the Magi, the star isn't a star. The star is Jesus himself, which is just, I mean, really, really kind of interesting, right? So the star appears to the Magi in their land, says, follow me, I'm going to be born soon or whatever. And so you've got this sort of shape-shifting yeah, the star actually has become a character, Jesus himself. And there's and, you know the other other examples in the in the apocalypse that I won't that I won't spoil because they're a lot of fun to to kind of discover. It's an amazing what you recount in the book is amazing to me how how much people took liberty and or decided like this is what this is what happened. I don't know where <laughs> they're getting it from, but there's a lot there. And then I'm sorry, you were gonna, I kind of interrupted you. You were going to move, I think, into the patristic literature. Oh yeah, no, no, no problem at all. Yeah, the the patristics were I sort of imagined them as sort of more pastoral figures, like right to um, specific audiences, and almost like I mean, all of the patristic literature isn't this, but I almost almost imagine them as almost like sermons. So, Doctor, when we talk about apocryphal literature, what does that? What exactly does that mean? Where do we find it, and and where does it come about? Yeah, so apocryphal literature is a kind of technical term for a collection of texts that come after the New Testament. It literally means hidden texts or something like that. So, so the these these sort of texts that are that are sort of sidelined. But after the New Testament, some of them are actually very popular in the early church, but they are all written kind of after the New Testament, and they are written many of them in imitation of styles that we find in the New Testament. So. For example, you have apocryphal gospels. There's one called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is a which is an apocryphal gospel, and it tells the story of Jesus' childhood. So these stories of, of what, what would Jesus have been like as a child, and then there's there's others that are focused on Jesus' death. Like there's another gospel called the the, the Gospel of Peter, which is a post New Testament. And all of these things are written as a way of kind of retelling stories that we find in the New Testament, and filling in details and changing some details. But the apocryphal gospels are taking what we find in the New Testament and they're sort of expanding on it or reading new ideas in it. These texts often have a people attached to them. So like the gospel of Peter that I just mentioned, somebody at some point attributes this text to Peter, probably not written by Peter himself, but there's a traditional attribution of this text written by Peter presumably to give it a little bit of authority, like, ooh, this is a text that Peter read. Maybe we would like to read this. And so, yeah, so that's that's sort of what, when we talk about Apocrypha, that's what we're talking about. Well, let me ask you this. Going back several years ago, there were a series of books by Dan Brown that became very, very popular. Mm -hmm. Movies were made out of them. Da Vinci Code? Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. Based Mm -hmm. on, I believe, the Gospel of Thomas. And Dan Mm -hmm. Brown made the point in his book that these were hidden Gospels, hidden from the public by the Vatican that no one knew about them and that it was a big conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the same literature that apparently everybody knows about? Right. Professor, that I get this question a lot. Like, well, these are these are these texts that the Vatican has suppressed, right? It's always the Vatican who's suppressing these things in their in their secret library. 
And so, yeah, no, we're talking about the same collection of texts or the same textual phenomena. But one of the things that, that Dan Brown does, which is really your response, is that he, he does sort of frame these texts as actively suppressed by the church. The, the truth is that one of the reasons why, I mean, cer- certainly there's some, there are some texts that are deemed as dangerous or a little bit heretical, but really one of the reasons why these texts are less popular, the gospels that we have in the New Testament, is because they weren't being read with as much frequency as the gospels in the New Testament were. And so, for example, you mentioned the gospel of Thomas. This is a wonderful example of a text that really all biblical scholars know about. There are English translations of it everywhere. And why Oslo Thomas not in the New Testament? Don't you think it should be in the New Testament? Well, not really, because the Gospel of Thomas, there's like, we we don't really have all that many copies from the ancient world. We have a few, but if we don't have that many copies, that probably means that it wasn't being read with the same frequency as these other Gospels were. And so the Apocrypha, are less sort of these texts that are actively suppressed, but they do give us a glimpse into the the different early Christian groups that might have been, let's say, the minority groups. Patristic authors are, they have thesis statements, they're arguing points. And so there's just kind of a different different focus there. So then we come to all of the information in your book that really talks about what's happened throughout history for the last Mm -hmm. 2,000 years. And I'd like to read from the book one more time, if I may. Mm Mm-hmm. As trumpets blast and angelic voices sound, stars begin to twinkle against the dark sky. A new star flashes and begins to move, coming to rest over a sleepy city just as three men arrive on camels. They make their way down a dark and cramped alley, eventually arriving at a stable. As they enter, a woman sits asleep in her chair. When she wakes up, she is startled by the sight of them. After some banter, They learn that the child's name is Brian. The men present their gifts and depart, only to return a few seconds later when they discover that they are at the wrong stable. So begins Monty Python's (laughs) life of Brian. (laughs) I love the fact that you have, forget what it really means, which, why it's here. I love the fact that you have this in this book. But when one reads the book, you start to understand why it is here. And mm-hmm. what's happened to this story mm-hmm. and what we have read into it and what we think we know about it and how it affects us. And I just think it's wonderful that it's here. But just so everybody understands that you are a real scholar with a real scholarly intent, <laughs> why is it here? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a real scholar with, with a real scholarly intent. But also, I think that Life of Brian is just hilarious. <laughs> it's a fun It's a fun movie. It also is just a very, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a very profound movie if you watch it and you sort of think about it in terms of some of the conversations that happen in scholarship about who Jesus actually was and, and, and all of this. So, but there's, a, there's an entire book on that called Jesus and Brian, which is a great read. But what is it doing in this book? Well, I mean, obviously I like the movie and so it was on my list of things that I kind of had to include in the book, mm-hmm. or at least <laughs> I wanted to include in the book. But Brian, th- this, this particular scene is in the book because there's a detail in that opening scene of Life of Brian that a lot of people don't notice. And it's very much related to depictions of the Magi that I think has become so common that people don't see it. 
And that is that when you look at the, at the Magi in Life of Brian, John Cleese's character is in blackface. And you can't see it so well because he has all of this ornate jewelry in front of his face. But if you look, he very, very clearly has his face painted black. And there's this whole just there's this whole phenomenon that's a complicated phenomenon, but this phenomenon of the black magus, like the black king. And if you look at different nativities, I mean, if you look at the nativity in your in your house, you might find that one of the Magi has darker skin. When we were unpacking our Christmas decorations the other day, which is the first time I'd seen our Christmas decorations since this book came out, we we took out a bag that had the, the the Fisher Price nativity that we've had for 10 years. And I look at that and sure enough, one of the Magi is just a little darker. So this story, though, is in that chapter. It's in the book as a way of highlighting that people have done strange things with the Magi. And so where does that darker skin come from? Well, it sort of comes from a good place, I think. I would label it as a good place. The idea develops at one point in this tradition that the Magi are not traveling together, but they're converging on Bethlehem from all of these different places. So there's, there's these stories about one of them comes from India, one of them comes from Africa, and sort of this idea that Jesus's birth unites the world or something like that. But then the, the, the darker skin that becomes associated traditionally with Balthazar, that darker skin begins to appear in art along with the rise of the slave trade in Europe. And so there is a sort of racial dimension to this that, that sort of becomes unsavory. There's a classicist by the name of Cord Whitaker who writes about this and he says the, the, the black king, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have his book in front of me, but you know, he says the black king sort of becomes a way that white Europeans can identify with the Magi but then they don't have to kind of identify with the black king sort of it, 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 yeah, it's, but it's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon. And it's one of those examples of, even though this comes from a place of the world unites around, around the birth of Jesus, it then ends up being used for kind of what I call unsavory purposes. Well, it's a fascinating book and I loved reading it and it does put together the story for me in a way that really illuminates Matthew's gospel about who Jesus was. Because if you look at the beginning of the gospel and the story of the Magi and then the end of the gospel where Jesus is crucified and Pilate at that point allows them to call him the king of the Jews, which is so ironic and so poignant. And when you put it back to the beginning, you see that Matthew is told a complete story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. This is the king of the Judeans, and this is what happens to the king of the Judeans. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for the book. Now, I have two very, very patient deacons sitting here. <laughs> and I'd like to know what they'd like to talk about, what they'd like to ask, what they'd like to inform us of. So, Professor, look, you wrote this book for a lay audience. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some of our listeners are saying, these guys are really in the weeds. Um, I don't know if they're, how well some of them are following it. Some are probably all right, but why did you write the book? What's the takeaway? So, I mean, I think one of the things that I have become convinced of in my research on ancient literature and just maybe storytelling in general 
is the idea that when we retell stories, the characters tend to take on attributes of the people who are telling those stories. And so this idea being that we kind of start to see ourselves in these characters and Mage I are a great example of this, but I really was just, I, I became very fascinated. I tell the full story in the, in the introduction or the, or either the introduction or the acknowledgements, but the, the full story is I was a recently defended doctoral student who is looking for its next project. And so I, I, I found it just very, very interesting to see how these 12 verses in Matthew gave rise to just hundreds and hundreds of pages of traditions. And so to sit down and kind of sort through those. But I found that also when I was talking with with various different people about what I was working on, and when I was talking with lay people as well as scholars, and saying, oh, wow, well, there's all these texts that that do these interesting things with the Magi, I found that almost everyone that I was talking to didn't really know that. And so really, the the motivation behind this book was to take that complicated retelling of this story and that complicated, those complicated traditions and to try to put them in a format where anyone who picked up the book could learn something, regardless of whether they were a trained biblical scholar or my 11-year-old. And what was Matthew's purpose in sticking Magi in the story? Well, and that's the, and that is, that is the kind of $10 million question is what, why did he choose that word? I mean, why did he choose these characters? The, the position of many biblical scholars has been that the Magi are supposed to be understood as Gentiles, right? To, as non-Jews. And so the idea being that Matthew has these non-Jews coming from the East and that they are coming to worship Jesus. And then the conclusion that they draw from this is that Matthew is foreshadowing the fact that Christianity would become a Gentile movement rather than a Jewish one. And I find this to actually be extremely problematic because I think it's extremely uncreative because Magi is a loaded term. And so why did he choose that? I mean, I think there's still a lot of mystery for me. And I, I'm very, very clear about that in the book that I think there's only so much we can say with certainty. But I do think that with the other examples of Magi in ancient literature, when we're looking at other non-Christian authors who were talking about Magi, they're always talking about them in the context of of royalty, like these are these are advisors to kings. And so I think that Matthew imagines Magi coming from the east and 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 paying tribute to the one born king of the Judeans. I imagine that is one of Matthew's ways of saying, look, I'm not just telling you that Jesus is the rightful king of the Judeans. The Magi came and put their stamp of approval on him. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, the East is where all the wisdom was. It always right. has been. So that's another thing. So these are smart guys from the smart place. Right. You know, and, so. and, and, and then there's sort of a sense of them being exotic. Right. So the East is also where, I mean, everything is different. Right. It's all sort of colorful and this kind of, of infatuation with the Orient and the Eastern kind of yeah wisdom and magic and all of that stuff. Yeah. Now, for the listeners, something that they may be familiar with back to their Christmas crush there, their, their little stable they're setting up possibly as, as this airs. That came, I just want to remind everybody, that came from the 1200s. That was St. Francis of Assisi that, that came up with this thing we do. He was the first one to do the Christmas crush. And so whether it's the wise men or the animals, 
or the or the idea of a Western stable, because this is an Italian man saying, "Oh, he was born in a stable. This is what a stable looks like where I live." And then right. you go to you go to the Near East and they show you a cave. Right. You know, that's exactly like, right. Yeah. It's not it's not a wooden structure. It's not a barn. Right. Mm-hmm. So well, this is another example of what the professor is talking about. That this is our imaginations trying to understand what we're reading, and we can only do that with the world we know. So, for example, you have pictures of Christ throughout history that people are saying, oh, he's always a white man. He's this and that. Well, that's because white people were doing the painting. And, you know, right. and a lot of them up to a certain point in history had never seen a black person. You look at the book of Kells, Jesus has got red hair and blue eyes. What he's God became a man. Well, what's a man look like? Well, it looks like Brian over here, back to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and they they did the best they could, and then we we just don't get that. Well, that's that doesn't look like. So we've it's always us in the story. There's no escaping that. So I just wanted to to kind of give that as a little hook for the listener to to hang on to and look at their own experience. And of, and of course, everything we look at is a raw shock test. What do you see in the what do you see in the ink blots? And mm-hmm. I see this, I see that, and there's a certain subjectivity that's always brought to it. But I'd like to ask you, Professor, just to quickly to back up a little bit, because I'm thinking that we probably have some listeners that they just take the story at face value. And some mm-hmm. of them think that this is like the nightly news with Lester Holt or something. They're getting the blow by blow. Could you say a little bit just in general mm-hmm. about how people put these stories together and why? Like starting with the actual New Testament, just a quick mm-hmm. thumbnail like. This was not someone with a, a camera following these guys around and writing down every word, which wouldn't have been possible or whatever. Can you just give a little idea of this? So it, it, this is you, you must have to deal with this in your classes with undergraduates. Yeah, every every day, really. So, I yeah, the, the question of is this text true? I'm going to start with that and work my way back from it. And that's, I think, people who are reading this this and other texts devotionally, religiously, sacred texts, they sort of assume that this text is true. But what does that really mean? Well, if you ask them, what does that mean, really mean? Well, with a, with a story like the Magi, well, that means that there was Magi who came to, to Bethlehem, and that means that the story is true. What I like to encourage my students to do, though, is to think about truth not as historical accuracy, but as what is the meaning of this story? And so when we're dealing with a story like the Magi, this is a work, this is first and foremost a work of literature. It is, it is the author telling a story and trying to make certain claims that they think are true about the person of Jesus. And so in that regard, it doesn't really even matter if the story is historically accurate what matters when we're looking at it in this way is, well, what does the story mean? What are the potential meanings of this story? Because I think you're right. I think that most people who are approaching, or at least a lot of people who are approaching Matthew are reading it and saying, well, that just this, this happened and there we go. And they never really ask that question of meaning. So the question of meaning is what I'm, what I'm predominantly interested in in my classes and in this book. Yeah. Right. Because again, our problem as modern people is we are biased towards science, mm-hmm. which science is a wonderful thing, but mm-hmm. it well, is biased. Well, and well, we until say, the, it, well, until the pandemic came along. <laughs> right. Not, then we, yes, then we don't want to hear from the doctors. Yeah, right? These scientists but, are hacks. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that, so it's Joe Friday from the old Dragnet show. For those of you who are 100 years old, 
you know, we used to say just the facts, ma'am, just the facts when he was a cop interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And this idea that if we have the facts, I'll figure out the meaning. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the ancient world, that didn't exist. There was no science in the modern sense. They were not prejudiced towards facts. And in fact, the story was to give you the meaning. I'm going to tell you what Jesus means. Mm-hmm. That's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And that's all they could do, by the way. They couldn't, they didn't have the option of writing a a modern historical biography of Jesus. They, they, they didn't know how to do it. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the category in their mind. So the thing I want listeners to understand is no one is trying to say this is not trustworthy, that this is not the meaning of the story, but we're trying to give you a little bit of understanding of the way this was put together because you had ancient people, most of whom couldn't read and write. So the story was told orally. Now, that's the beginning. And then someone started writing it down. And the first thing they probably wrote, as best as we can figure, was a list like other religions have done and other philosophers, is a list of the sayings of Jesus. Jesus said this, Jesus said that, just a list of, of, of mm-hmm. his teachings and sayings. But they also had the story. Jesus, he did this, he went to Jerusalem, they killed him, he rose from the dead, they got the story. And then some, then these, these evangelist guys, the four gospel guys, have to sit down and say, all right, let's put this stuff together into one piece for, for use in the churches. Mm-hmm. And they take the stories for, and they take the sayings and they put them together in a way that makes sense to give what the church taught. And we believe this as, as believers. The guarantee of the truth of this is not Matthew. It's not any of this other stuff. It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, belief is belief. Belief in the scriptures, the truth of the scriptures, is still a belief. And our faith says that this is guaranteed by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that's why some books made it into the New Testament, and some were thrown out by the bishops for various reasons. So if God is going to reveal something, he's going to get it done one way or another. You're not going to stop him. You're not going to mess it up. So we're not saying it isn't true, but we're also inviting our listeners to step up to a level of understanding and appreciation where they realize that truth is not just facts. For just a simple example, the boy who cried wolf, everybody's heard that story. The kid says, the wolf is coming, the wolf is coming, the wolf never comes, and people don't believe this kid. And then one day the wolf comes and he says, the wolf's coming, no one believes him, and the wolf eats the kid. Is that story true? Well, yes, it it is. It has a true message, yeah. That's right, it's true. If you lie all the time, you, there will come a time when you need people to believe you, and they won't. And bad things can happen if people don't believe you. That is as true as one and one is two. But if you're going to get into, well, what's the kid's name? Do you have his address? Got right. a picture? I don't believe right. it. Well, you're, this is simplistic. So there are levels to what we mean by truth. And I just, I just want the listeners to understand that, that this is no one is saying that you, can't, you shouldn't believe it. I certainly believe it. I just don't believe it like a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. which is why a lot of people leave in the church because they get to a point in their life, they go, really, really talking snakes in the garden of Eden. That's what you're, that's what you're selling me. Well, right. no, we're not selling you talking snakes. That's, you're missing the point of the story. So it's good. This is a good exercise we're involved in here today. Now, I think that's all really good comments about how ancient authors are thinking about what they're writing. Did they think that they were telling a story with just the facts? Well, no, because that would be a boring story. So they are 
just as when we're telling stories about people in our lives who are who are long gone, we're telling a story that is highlighting certain things and maybe even leaving out certain things and occasionally maybe exaggerating a little bit. But that's that's how we tell stories. And that's how interesting stories are told. And Matthew is an interesting story, which means that, yeah, he probably he regardless of whether there's a historical memory behind it, he's still telling his story with his own way. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Van Den Eichel. This has been illuminating. It's been interesting. And I encourage all of our listeners, if they have any interest whatsoever in the Magi or St. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, or particularly Jesus, to go out and buy your book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yes, very nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is Deacon's Pod, again with an S, Deacon's, at Paulist.org. That's P A U L I S T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.